Thank you for downloading this podcast from Guymere Baptist Church. You can find out more about our church at our website, guymerebaptist.org.au. May God speak to you as you listen. Our Bible reading this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 14, and uh, beginning at verse 13. And uh, this passage comes just after uh, John the Baptist had been beheaded by King Herod. Chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were ill. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fishes, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he told the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Thanks, George. Good morning. It's good to have you here this morning, uh, and uh, trust that you're ready to hear from the Word. Uh, Can I just uh, take a moment, though, to congratulate the team who pulled together the market day yesterday? It's a great result. Uh, And if there are some cakes left, because as Brett said, the 830 did hit it it pretty hard. Uh, But if there are some left, I'd like to remind you of the words of one of our former pastors, Angela, who many of you remember. Uh, Angela used to say, opportunities like these, when a cake is for sale for one or two dollars, but it goes to a good cause, is an opportunity to give people 50 and walk away with your cake. So um, let me just encourage you once again, if you'd like to support the work of Southern Community Welfare, to perhaps generously buy a cake or slice after the service as well uh, as an opportunity to support that ongoing work uh, that's so vital to our community. Um, Sociologists use a phrase, uh, a thick reading to describe uh, a, uh, the analysis of something that's taking place in culture that goes beyond uh, the surface-level observation of what's happening to the underlying significance, from the what to the why. Uh, so it's one thing to have a look at what's happening in our politics, for instance, and see the, uh, the fact that everything's become very, very partisan and uh, there's not a lot of dialogue anymore and all that kind of stuff. It's another thing, though, to find out the why underneath it. Uh, there's the what, and then there's the why, a thick reading. Uh, and uh, what I'd like to, to propose to do today is a bit of a thick reading of this passage that you just heard read. Uh, so to try to get beyond just the surface of kind of the what underneath it to some of the why. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to have them out with you because we're going to be jumping around a little bit uh, as we try to delve into this passage a, l- a little bit more than we might normally. Uh, the, the story itself is fairly straightforward, isn't it? Uh, I don't think any of you got lost in the, in the plot that was just read for us. Jesus goes to a solitary place, a crowd gathers, which seems to happen wherever Jesus ends up going. He has compassion and heals everybody, and after a certain period of time, the disciples come and suggest that the, that the crowd gets dispersed so that they can go and find something to eat. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples that you should feed them, 
And the disciples respond by saying, we've only got a couple fish and a few loaves of bread. And Jesus says, bring that to me. Takes the bread and the fish, gives thanks, breaks it, gives it to the disciples who in turn feed the crowd. Everyone eats and is satisfied. They gather some leftovers. End of story. Well, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, but we would be right to suspect that there's a little bit more going on in this text. And the reason why we might suspect that is that this is one of the stories that is, first of all, told in all four gospel accounts. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very similar to each other, and John's gospel is quite different. But all four of them tell this same story. It's obviously important. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they also have kind of a a duplicate story where Jesus feeds the 4,000 just shortly afterwards. Uh, This passage is then referred to at least once in Matthew's gospel. Uh, In uh, uh, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus warns his disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious groups. Uh, the, The disciples don't know what he means, thinks he's probably having a go at them for forgetting bread. And Jesus responds by saying, why are you talking about bread? Don't you remember feeding the 5,000 and the leftovers, feeding the 4,000 and the leftovers, how can you still not understand that I'm not talking about bread? Right, so here's a go at them then, uh, but not about forgetting a loaf of bread. And then it's alluded to in two other places. In Matthew chapter 15, a Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and begs him to heal her daughter. Uh, And Jesus responds by saying, it's not right to give the food or for the children to the dogs. And the woman responds by saying, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. And this reference to crumbs seems to pick up the feeding of the 5,000 that precedes it and the feeding of the 4,000 that follows after it. And then there's another allusion, which we covered when we looked at at, uh, the Lord's Supper on Good Friday, because the sequence of the verbs, and I know that sounds like a horrible thing to say first thing on a Sunday morning, but the sequence of the verbs is identical. In both places, we're told that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Matthew, I think, wants us to see some kind of parallel between the feeding of the 5,000 and what happens right, on, uh, on Good Friday uh, when Jesus institutes that meal. So all of these things suggest to us that this is more than just a story that Matthew liked, right? This is more than just a, a story that Matthew thought was pretty cool, right, that Jesus fed some people. He fed a lot of people with not very much. We should include that somewhere. I know. I'll put it in chapter 14. Uh, I think that there is more significance to this that has some really important implications for us as followers of Jesus. And this is essentially what we want to be doing in the remaining weeks of this series. As Brett mentioned earlier, we want to kind of look back at some of the stories that Matthew has told in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You've all read a novel through more than once, right? You read a novel through once, you go, I love that novel, I'm going to read it a second time. And as you read it through the second time, because you know how it ends, there's all these things that suddenly become a lot more significant as you read because you know the ending. We want to do that with the gospel. Read it a second time through, knowing the ending, and have a look at some of these passages that make, shall I say, more sense once you know that Jesus died and rose again. This is the first one, all right? So that's what we're going to do. So hope you're up for a little bit of work this morning, right? Because we're going we're gonna to delve into this one a little bit. Now, the, the context of this in Matthew chapter 14 is actually fairly instructive. It says in verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened... He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. 
Uh, and as George mentioned, the previous little story tells the death of John the Baptist. But that's not what Jesus heard. That's not what he heard. Go back all the way to chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, and now you've, you find out what Jesus had heard about. Chapter 14 begins, at that time, so as Jesus is doing all this miraculous stuff, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. And he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. That is what Jesus heard about. Right? Because what follows in verse 3 is Matthew kind of filling in the details about why Herod would say that John is dead because he had narrated that at this point in time. The implication is that Jesus withdraws to, the, to a solitary place not because he is grieving the death of John, but because there is a political threat. Herod is interested in Jesus, and Jesus has come onto his radar, and that's not a good thing. Now, in terms of the kind of some of the reasoning behind that, Jesus withdraws three other times in the Gospels when he is faced with some sort of political opposition. The first is when he was a child. Chapter 2, verses 22, we're told that Joseph withdrew to Galilee because he had been warned in a dream about not settling where he had settled because of one of the religious, sorry, because of one of the political leaders. In chapter 4, verse 12, when John the Baptist is first imprisoned, then Jesus withdrew to Galilee and began his ministry. In chapter 12, verses four, verse 14, the political, sorry, the religious leaders plot to kill Jesus. And in verse 15, aware of this, Jesus withdrew. So until the time came for him to die, Jesus seems to withdraw from any political threat. And it seems to be the case here as well, which means that Matthew has set up this feeding of the 5,000 as a political event. There's a, a parallel between the kingdom of Herod the Tetrarch and the kingdom of Jesus, and there's this contrast that's being made. Not only has Jesus withdrawn, but there's this interesting little um, comparison between two different feasts. Uh, Craig Keener, in his commentary on Matthew, drew my attention to this. The first feast is that which Matthew goes on to tell us about when John lost his life. Herod had uh, imprisoned John because John had spoken out publicly against his marriage, which was to his brother's wife. It was a little bit manky, so I won't go into the details. Uh, but he'd spoken out against it. And because a prophet was such a significant figure in society, Herod had him arrested. But he was afraid of the crowd, of the, of the people, and so he didn't execute him until he has his birthday feast. And at his birthday feast, his stepdaughter dances. He loves it. So he says in front of all of his, his uh, party goers, uh, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What would you like? And she says, I would like John the Baptist's head on a platter. Herod is afraid of his guests. And so he fulfills his vow and delivers John's head to the girl who gives it to her mom. Happy Mother's Day. And, uh, and that's the end, kind of, shall we say, the end of the story, Right. So we have this feast where Herod, which you'd have to say making a stupid vow like that, probably involves drunkenness at some level. It's marked by fear. It's marked by death, right? The whole kind of bit. And then you have the feast that Jesus presents, which is this feeding out of compassion to the, to the masses who are needy, right? So there's this kind of setting this whole scene up, not just as a miraculous feeding, but as this political event. You with me so far? Okay. Right? 
So Jesus withdraws to a solitary place. And if Jesus has a weakness, right? If Jesus has a weakness, it's that he's not very good at getting away from it. You ever notice this? Jesus retreats to a solitary place and there's a crowd there. So someone's leaking it. First of all, I I think Judas was probably the the one who did it, right? Someone's leaking the information or Jesus is just a lousy hide-and-seek player, right? There might be something theological in that just as an aside, right? Jesus has a hard time hiding from people who want to find him. So think about that one if you want to stop there for a moment, right? So Jesus withdraws to a solitary place, and there's a crowd that's heard about it, and they've already arrived. Think politically for a moment. The last thing Jesus needs, having just heard that Herod has heard about him, the last thing that Jesus needs is a massive crowd of people gathering in the wilderness to meet a prophet-slash-messianic figure. That's going to send the wrong message to Herod, isn't it? Well, that's what's happened. That's what's happened. And it is a massive crowd. We're used to big crowds. So 5,000 men plus women and children, 10,000 people. I mean, go to the footy and there's more people than that. This is a massive crowd, all right? Uh, Archaeologists suspect that the entire population of Capernaum, one of the centers of Jesus' ministry, one of the main towns on uh, on the Sea of Galilee, may have had a population, total population of between two and 3,000 people. So this is a crowd bigger than the largest town in the region. It's a massive crowd. Now Jesus, if he were looking for his own personal interest, his own good, he might have been angry that the crowd got there ahead of him. Like, honestly, this is the last thing that I need. This is not helping me at all. Or he could have just turned the boat around and tried to find another solitary place, right? Even more solitary than that one. That's not what Jesus does, though. When he sees the crowd, we're told, what? He was filled with compassion. And so he lands, and even though this was not at all useful for his own ministry, he heals them. And even his compassion actually has this political undertone. Uh, Jesus has once before, we've we've had it reported in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew says that Jesus healed the people because he had compassion for them because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd, which is a metaphor that's used in significant passages in the Old Testament, in Numbers and in Kings and in Zechariah, to describe a group of people who either have no leadership or lousy leadership. We've just been told the kind of leadership in this area, haven't we? Under Herod the Tetrarch and his fearfulness and his folly. These are people who are sheep without a shepherd. In fact, Jesus picks up the Zechariah passage in, uh, at the Last Supper when he tells the disciples that this is going to take place, that he's going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You're all going to deny me, right? You're all going to run away. Picks up that same language. So this is, this is the scenario So Matthew, by the time we get to the feeding miracle itself, this political background ought to really be in the forefront of our mind. This is actually, shall we say, a contrast between two very different kingdoms and two very different kings. And the implication lay lay in that area for us. You still with me? All right? It's heavy going for a Sunday morning, isn't it? All right? Stick with me. So here's the scenario. Now, I want you just to, to, to picture the crowd for a moment. I'm not sure if you've ever kind of imaginatively 
tried to, to visualize one of these scenes, just think about it for a moment. So they've just got off the boat. So there's the, the, the water. Probably the, the land kind of rises a little bit at least. Jesus is perhaps on a bit of a rise. You see the crowd? There's this long, long winding line of people who are in need. You've got uh, parents with their sick children. You've got um, those who are blind being led by their friends and carers. Perhaps have some paralyzed people who are either being carried on some sort of pallet or helped along on crutches or canes. You have people who are stooped over because of back pain, those who have shriveled limbs, those who are deaf, those who are demon-possessed and are being brought to Jesus potentially somewhat against their will. You see that big line of people? More Easter show than anything else, really, right? The disciples are probably on either side of the line vetting them as they come through, introducing them to Jesus, all of those sorts of things. But think about what's happening beyond that. The line kind of spreads out, and then there's this big, huge mass of people who are either waiting to join the queue. But that's not the only group of people, are they? Because as every individual, as every group comes to Jesus and their blindness is taken away, or their ears are opened, or the demons are cast out, or their limbs are restored, or their strength is given, or they are healed of whatever need, they circle back into the crowd. And so this crowd is this mixture, isn't it, of those who are poor and needy, those who are sick and struggling, and those who have been restored in the power of Jesus, who are now praising God, exclaiming to one another they can't believe what has taken place, praising God and all that He has done in Jesus. Do you see the crowd? It's, uh, it's, it's noisy, isn't it? It's noisy. It's not this kind of calm little crowd. It's noisy. People are freaking out and yelling and crying out to Jesus and moving forward and pressing forward. And this goes on for hours. It's kind of a, a microcosm of the church, wouldn't you say? A little bit of a little snapshot of the kingdom of, of heaven, as it, uh, sorry, the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, right? where it's the already but not yet, partially needy, partially transformed, all mixed in with one another. Isn't it a wonderful picture? It's a great crowd. Anyway, they get to the end of the day, and the disciples come to, to Jesus, and they say, listen, there's no place to eat here. Uh, we should send them home. We should send them away. Not a great solution, really, but there wasn't really many other solutions. It was unlikely people had a lot of money. The little local villages probably would not be able to, support, to, uh, to cope with the need anyways. So it's basically send them home. And Jesus' response is really interesting, isn't it? Because it says they don't actually need to go anywhere to be fed. You feed them. Ever wonder about that? That's a command that Jesus gives them. He's not, he's not joking, is he? He's not having a go at them. He's not making fun of them, right? He's not kind of going, oh, well, why don't you feed them? <laughs> you know, as if. Now, Jesus, this is a serious command, right? In the Greek, it's actually an imperative, right? It's, it's a command. You feed them. And the disciples seemingly take Jesus seriously. They go and do a stock take. It doesn't take very long because anyone can count to seven. We have two fish and we have five loaves of bread, all right? Uh, that's, that's what we have. Right? But Jesus isn't joking. He's not mocking. This is not impossible. This is a continuation of his ministry. And so he says, well, bring, them, bring that to me. And Jesus takes them, takes the loaves, gives thanks. And again, one of the commentators pointed out that Jesus just gives thanks. That's all he does. It was just the common Jewish blessing of food. 
He does not take the bread, look to heaven and say, oh, Heavenly Father, there's a huge crowd of people here, and we don't have a lot to eat, and we're starving here. So can you please, 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 please do something really miraculous and make this bread stretch? Can you just, can you please multiply it? He doesn't do any of that, does he? To some degree, it's a completely ordinary meal as far as Jesus is concerned. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it his disciples. And it's his disciples who, as Jesus has commanded, feed the crowd. And they all eat, and they are satisfied, and there are 12 basketfuls left. And the 12 is suspicious, isn't it? If you're going to do something biblical, it's in sets of 7, 12, or 40, right? So here we go. It's 12, right? Of course it's 12. There are 12 apostles and 12 tribes of Israel. There's some sort of symbolism here of the whole entire people of God. Yes, you're probably onto something. Here's the scenario, right? This is the, this is the story that Jesus, uh, that Matthew tells us. And again, there are some other allusions to previous passages in the Old Testament, so in Exodus chapter 16, the people are in the wilderness, in a solitary place, you might say, and they have no food, and God provides through Moses the manna. The manna falls from heaven every night with the dew, and when the dew disappears, the manna is left, and the people live on that for the 40 years in the wilderness. That's one. Uh, the more significant allusions are to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah himself is fed miraculously by ravens while he's kind of hiding out from the king of Israel. And then when that fails, he ends up going to Zarephath. Remember the story? He meets a widow in Zarephath and says to her, would you make me something to eat? And she says, I'd love to, but essentially I'm gathering wood to take the last little bit of flour and the last little oil that I have to make one more loaf of bread. Then my son and I are going to eat it and then we will die because there is nothing else. And Elijah says, would you just make me something first? And so she does. She goes and she takes a little, loaf, a little handful of flour and a little bit of oil, makes some bread, brings it back, and lo and behold, there is still a little handful of flour and a little bit of oil. And for the next, how, however knows how long, Elijah and this widow and her son live on the same handful of flour and the same little oil because it never runs out. Elisha, who follows Elijah, also has this miraculous feeding. In 2 Kings chapter 4, a man comes with 20 loaves of bread to feed 100 men. And they're like, we're never going to make 20 loaves of bread stretch for 100 men. And Elisha says, yes, we will. It'll all work out and there'll be leftovers. And lo and behold, 100 men eat 20 loaves of bread and they're all full and there's stuff left over. How miraculous is that? Pretty miraculous until you get to Jesus, in which case we're kind of going, why'd you even include that story, right? Like you know, 20 loaves and 100 men as if that's very difficult, Right? Do you see what, see what Matthew's doing here? There's also, perhaps, some sort of, a little bit of a, an allusion to the story of Ruth and Boaz. Remember Boaz? He's the kinsman redeemer, the one who can save Ruth and her family line. She meets him in the fields, and she, he provides for her at lunch, and she eats all that she wants, is completely satisfied, and then has a whole bunch left over to take back to her mom, right? And Boaz is this kind of type of Christ, now, whether Matthew had all of those stories or only a couple in his mind, do you see how this story fits? This is not just a miraculous feeding. Matthew wants us to grapple with something much more significant. And I, and I think you can probably figure it out by now, can't you? The significance, the thick reading of this passage is not just some miraculous feeding, but pointing to the provision that is ours in Christ Jesus. The, the provision. And it, shall I say, it's the regular provision. 
I love the fact that Jesus doesn't do something miraculous to make the bread multiply. He doesn't pray on it. He doesn't do anything weird. He just gives thanks and off they go. It is the regular provision. And then when you look at the death and resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Do, you need to see, do, I, need to, do I need to draw the picture here? In his death, we have provision of forgiveness and transformation and healing and peace and whatever we need and some Jesus over caters, doesn't he? There's way more than you need. There's way more than you need. And, and this is the central significance. And the implications then, I think, are twofold. First of all, if you have ever doubted that there is enough for you, set those doubts aside because there is. Ever so often I, I hear from people, you know, they think, ah, oh, my past, my background, things I've done, things that have happened to me, my, my weaknesses, my failures, whatever it might be, somehow excludes them from participation in the kingdom of God. Every so often it's that sense that, oh, you know, Jesus, I, I, I couldn't be forgiven. I'm beyond the pale. Guess what this story says? There is more than enough for whatever you need from Jesus. More than enough. What do you need from Jesus? There is more than enough for you. And there is nothing, there is no, there is nothing that will stretch his resources. There is no individual, there is no family, there is no group that Jesus looks at and thinks to himself, oh, that's beyond me. That's outside of my scope. It's outside of my power. I don't have the resources for that. So if you need to hear that today, there is enough for you, then you need to hear that today. There is enough for you. But I think there's also another significant implication. I think it would be fair to say that our world needs what Jesus offers, wouldn't you say? Our world needs the forgiveness and the peace and the restoration and the renewal and the transformation and the healing that Jesus brings. Our world is desperate for it. And what this passage seems to say is that while Jesus is the ultimate source of what the world needs, Jesus, first of all, says to those who follow after him, you feed them. You feed them. This is not a matter of just Jesus doing his thing. He says to the disciples, without joking, without mocking, you feed them. When the disciples say, I have two fish and five loaves. Jesus says, give them to me. And when he gives them back, they are multiplied to the point of satisfaction. Perhaps you've been following Jesus for a while. Perhaps you believe in him. Perhaps you know the provision that he offers. Perhaps you know and see and understand the significant need in our world. Jesus says, you feed them. And while there's probably a physical component of that, there's also a spiritual component of that. We can bring what we have, what little we have, which we know is insufficient for the need, but in the hands of Jesus, it becomes more than enough. This passage points to the extravagant provision of the kingdom of God and of its king 
who filled with compassion over caters for the needs of those who are there, but who also calls those who are following him to participate in that provision. You feed them. Maybe we should put that over our door. We need more doors out of the building, right? As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. That's the one. And we'll put another one over another exit. You feed them. Off you go. This is part of our, this is part of our mission. As we have been changed by Jesus, we are to be participants with him and seeing others changed. I want to pray for us. Uh, whether we need that provision of Jesus this morning or whether we need to hear again that we're to participate with him and then we'll respond in worship and prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your provision. We thank you that in you there is more than enough for all of our needs. And I pray that for each of us here, whether we need healing or guidance or wisdom or strength or forgiveness or peace or transformation, that there is more than enough in you. And we thank you that you provide out of compassion for us, that you are not um, angry or disappointed or um, uh, in any way cynical towards our need, but provide over and above what we require. And I pray for anyone here this morning who needs something from you that you would provide for them today. But we also thank you that you invite us to participate with you and give to us the same kind of command that you gave to your disciples, that we are to take what's in our hands and feed those around us. Rely not on our own strength or on our own resources, but on the provision that comes from giving what we have to you and then receiving back to pass on. So I pray that you might challenge us, that you might continue to encourage us, that you might provide for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.